You know, unlike, uh, unlike the Disney character Peter Pan, I've learned that most kids actually do want to grow up. As much as they enjoy playing and having fun and being a kid, most of them can't wait to be a grown-up, to be an adult. In fact, if you, if you pay attention to kids when they're playing games and when they're playing pretend, very often they play, uh, they play what's called a house, where someone is the mom and someone is the dad, and they, they love kind of pretending like they're grown up. They like to play like they are. They like to act like they are. Um, I think the reason why I've noticed with my oldest daughter, Lilia, her perception of what it means to be adult is very interesting. Kids look at adults. This is pretty much what Lilia thinks it means to be an adult. You get to do whatever you want, whenever you want. No one tells you when to go to bed. No one tells you to clean your room. No one tells you to eat your vegetables. And to a child, that's like paradise. She wants to grow up. You know, she is right in some ways. I had this kind of uh, epiphany. Uh, this is probably like five years ago now. And it was about 10 o'clock at night. And I was hungry. Like, unfortunately, I often am at 10 o'clock at night. And I know you're very disciplined. You don't eat anything. You go drink a glass of water, but I don't have that sort of discipline. And so I, I just open up the fridge and, you know, we do that stance in front of the fridge, the scroll. What do I have? What are my options? Quickly jump past all the vegetables down to where the meat is. And uh, I see an unopened package of bacon, 10 at night. And I'm like, I'm an adult. I can do whatever I want whenever I want. And so, sure enough, I take out some bacon, I throw it in the oven, and at 10.30, I was eating bacon. So, so in some ways, Lily is right. You, you kind of, there are, and I actually remember having this moment in all of making my bacon and eating my bacon thinking, I'm glad I'm an adult, because <laughs> I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. However, as you become an adult, isn't it true that uh, there, are some, uh, there are some things that change that aren't as wonderful as bacon at 10.30 at night? Sometimes, do you miss the concerns of a child? Having only the concerns of a child, I should say. Uh, the concerns of doing your homework, which seemed so concerning when I was in high school, but I look back and I would trade that concern for other concerns now, or the concerns of making friends, or talking to girls, or whatever it might be. And, and now, as an adult, what are your concerns? Paying your bills, paying your mortgage, raising your children, if you're married, being a good spouse, how about work-related concerns? Some of you have some work-related concerns, whether it's getting a job, keeping a job, doing a great job at your job. Then family concerns and relational concerns, things you weren't aware of when you were a kid. Or, and as you get older, more and more health concerns. So there's just, we have these real concerns. Everyone has concerns. And this morning, you've walked in here with concerns. We're going to continue in our series from the book of Judges called Broken Heroes. And this morning, we're actually going to be talking about one of the more well-known judges in the book of Judges, and his name is Gideon. And as we look at the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and 7, I want to encourage you to ask different questions than maybe you have before when you've looked at this story. And the questions I want you to ask are this, what are the concerns in this story? What are the Israelites concerned about? What is Gideon concerned about? And lastly, what is God concerned about? And as we are considering all of that, we should also ask this morning, what am I most concerned about? Which, what captures my attention and fills up my mind and distracts me and keeps me up at night? What concerns me most? And also, 
What can this story teach me about what I should do with those concerns? So we're going to be looking in Judges chapter 6 and 7 at Gideon, the hiding hero. I just want to set the scene for you. Uh, The Israelites are back in bondage again. Remember, we talked about this. They're back in bondage again. And this time, the nation that is tormenting them is a nation referred to as Midian, the Midianites. In the beginning of Judges chapter 6, we learn that the Midianites are, there's so many of them that the author describes them as being without number. There's just so many Midianites. Now, as some, some people would look at that and go, oh, well, this is an example where the Bible contradicts itself. You can't trust the Bible because in Numbers chapter 31, verse 17, a few books back, it said that Moses killed all the Midianite males. So if Moses really killed all the guys, all the Midianite males in Numbers chapter 31, how are there so many now in the book of Judges that they are considered to be without number? And that's, some people look at that and go, see, there's a perfect example. The Bible contradicts itself. You can't trust the Bible. However, if you remember all the way back to week one, we talked about this thing called war rhetoric, where sometimes the language where it says that he killed all the males, it could simply mean he killed all the males in the army that day. It was often just sort of an exaggeration sort of statement that was used to convey total dominance and victory. So Moses in Numbers 31 doesn't literally kill every Midianite male. Otherwise, they wouldn't show up here again in the book of Judges, but they do show up. An interesting thing about the Midianites, as opposed to the other nations that Israel has faced so far, like the Canaanites, is that Midian uses a totally different tactic when it comes to tormenting the people of Israel. I don't know how many of you have seen the animated film Bugs Life, but in Bugs Life, there's the, the bad guys are the grasshoppers. And the worst is, his name is actually Hopper. And what the grasshoppers do is they make these other bugs work all year round to collect all their food for winter. And then right before winter, the grasshoppers show up and they take all the food that the bugs had harvested. Well, this was the exact tactic that the Midianites were using. The Israelites, the Israelites would be allowed to attend to their crops and maintain their livestock. So the Midianites weren't really trying to destroy or kill the Israelites. They were just trying to benefit off of them. So I said, you can maintain your livestock, you can maintain, uh, you can attend to your crops, but at the harvest time, at the crucial moment, when the crops were ready to harvest and the livestock was finally strong and healthy, the Midianites, like Hopper from Bugs Life, would show up. And they would both steal away from the Israelites the sustenance that they needed to live, but they also sometimes, just for fun, would just destroy stuff. So it's not even like, They were taking the things they needed. But even the things they didn't need, they would destroy their crops. They would slaughter their livestock so that the Israelites couldn't survive and get strong. And this is really called starvation warfare. This is what they were doing to Israel. Starvation warfare and economic dominance. It was really a form of terrorism. So there's a a different different sort of um, obstacle that the Israelites are facing here. And in, in fact... One of the terms that's used to describe the Midianites in the beginning of Judges chapter 6 is that they're like locusts. And the term locust is meant to indicate both the number of them, but also the effect that they left. When a, locust, when, when a group of locusts would swarm in and hit a land, they would strip the land bare, and there'd be nothing left. And it was true also of the Midianites. And so the Israelites, of course, they call out to God for deliverance. This happens for seven years. Imagine this. Seven years of no harvest, seven years of watching all of your work, 
all of your best produce, all of your fattened calves, watching all of your goat, all of your chickens, seven years of watching the Midianites come in like a bunch of bullies and destroy it or take it away. Israel cries out to God like they always do in this cycle. Now, if you've paid attention in the series to the cycle, the next thing that should happen is God should send a deliverer. But this book is starting to shift on us. God is, I wouldn't say he's losing his patience because God is always patient, but God is starting to change how he deals with the people of Israel because he's seeing they're not getting it. They're not getting it. And so this time he does something different. The cycle changes a little bit. Instead of sending the deliverer, he first sends a prophet. We don't know this prophet's name. And this is what the prophet says in verse 8 of Judges chapter 6. He says, the Lord says, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. He's reminding them, this is what I've done for you. Then verse 10 says, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You should not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And here is... Here is the, um, the reason why they are where they are. But you have not obeyed my voice. This time, they get the sermon before they get the Savior. This time, they get the sermon before they get the Savior. God is wanting to make sure that they understand why they are where they are. And for us, in our own lives, we cry out to God for deliverance. God, deliver me from this and help me out of this situation and take this away from me. And there are times where we need to hear the sermon before we get the deliverance. We need to understand this is why you are where you are. Look at all the things I've done for you. You've forgotten everything I've done for you. And you've turned to other gods. They've done nothing for you. I've done everything for you. And you're turning to them. And so they get the sermon here. And he says, the issue is idolatry. You love other gods more. So this is the scene now as we meet Gideon. And there's really three things that we learn about God in this story of Gideon. And the first one is this, that God is the great recognizer. God is the great recognizer. So we meet Gideon. Now, here's the thing with Gideon. There's actually nothing very special about Gideon at all. He's completely ordinary. He's ordinary in every way. He's from an inconsequential family. He has no real status or heritage. And where he lives, his hometown is called Ophrah, not Oprah, but Ophrah, uh, his hometown. And, and his hometown is on the border. It was near the border with Midian. So he would have been one of the first towns affected by the attacks. So every year he saw the Midianites coming. And when we find Gideon, when, when, when God finds Gideon and we find him in this text, do you know where Gideon is? If you've heard this story before, Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, why is this worth noticing? Well, a couple of reasons. First off, no one threshed wheat in a wine press, and here's why. The whole practice of the threshing of wheat was they would take the stalks of grain, and then they had this little instrument called a, 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 a flail, and they would hit the stalks. And as they hit the stalks, two things would break loose from the stalk of, of wheat, both the chaff and the grain. And they'd be left holding just the straw, which they don't need. So after they got done kind of like hitting this, you can actually watch it on YouTube if you want. They would, they would then discard the straw, get rid of it, and left on the ground below them was wheat and chaff. But they only wanted the kernels of wheat. They didn't want the chaff. So what would they do? They would take it all in their hands and they would throw it up in the air. And the wind would blow the chaff away. And all that would fall to the ground was the kernels of wheat. And they would keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And after time... 
there was nothing but kernels of wheat, and then that's what they would use to make food. So where would they do it? I have a picture, actually. This is a, this is a picture of a, um, of a uh, threshing uh, floor. Not that one. Go to the previous one, the threshing floor. So threshing floors were always done out in the open. Why? You can figure it out. Because you needed what? The wind. You need the wind. And so you would always do it in a, a place like this. By the way, if you're listening to this sermon online, these sermons are online, and as you can tell by looking around, we have a lot of people traveling this weekend, lots of weddings this weekend. So God bless all who are traveling. So if you're listening online, you can just simply Google Gideon and threshing floor, or Gideon and wine press, and you'll see the images that we're talking about right now. But threshing wheat would always happen in a large open space, and you might think, well, maybe Gideon didn't have access to one. Well, actually, later in chapter 6, verse 37, he, we realize he does have access to one. It's actually where he ends up laying out the fleece in a threshing floor. So Gideon has one. So why is he here? Show the next picture. This is a wine press. Now a wine press was cut into the ground or dug into the ground and it was exactly what it sounds like. It's a place where they would, they would, they would stomp on and, 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 and mesh um, grapes and stuff so that they could get wine and the juice would flow down lower and it was a whole system that they had. But nobody ever threshed wheat in here. If you got inside a wine press, you're out of sight. You're down low. You can't be seen. So obviously, when we meet Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press, it's because he's afraid. He doesn't want to be seen. It's because they've been under this starvation warfare for seven years. And he thinks, if any, Midians walk, if any Midianites walk by right now and they see me out in the open threshing wheat, they're going to come and take all the kernels of grain that I need. So he says, I'll do it down in this wine press, even though it's not a very good place to do it, because where is the wind going to come from? And what's interesting here is that Gideon is in a place where he thinks he can't be seen. But the Lord sees him. He's in a place where he thinks no one can see me, but God sees him. And the Lord is watching him. We don't know how long the Lord is watching him, but in verse 12, the angel of the Lord, this is an Old Testament um, manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. So a simpler way of saying this is, this is Jesus before he was born, showing up on the scene, It's a theophany. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, now listen to what he says to Gideon. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. You ever have that moment where someone's talking to you and you think they're not talking to you? You look around like... (laughs) I'm sure Gideon did that. Mighty man of valor. Who's he talking to? Who's behind me? Who's around me? Who else does this stranger see? And then I have to think, maybe Gideon thought, oh, he's, he's, he's he's making fun of me. He's, he's having a poke at me. He's, he's saying, look at you down there hiding, threshing wheat like a coward, you mighty man of valor. So, but Jesus says to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Is he mocking him? I don't actually think he's mocking him here. Is he talking about someone else? I don't think so. So how can this possibly true be true? And here's why. It's true because God says it's true. I mean, it's that simple. It's true about Gideon because God's the one who said it's true. And if God says something, it's true. Whether we believe it, whether we see it, whether we understand it, if God says that about him, it's true. And then he says, the Lord is with you. And Gideon says, the Lord is with us. No, he isn't. Where are all his wonderful deeds, all the things that we've heard that he's done? Why has all this happened? And then Gideon says, the Lord has given us into the Midianites' hands and he has abandoned us. And Is Gideon right that the Lord has given them into the Midianites' hands and that he abandoned them? Well, yes and no. It does say early in the text that the Lord did give the Israelites into the Midianites' hands. But did God abandon them? No. They abandoned God. God didn't abandon them. 
And this is very insightful for us because one does not mean the other. Just because we feel like we are in the hands of the enemy does not mean that the Lord has abandoned us. He might think that, and of course the the irony is that when he says, where is the Lord? He's not with us. He's actually with him right then, speaking with him. Gideon doesn't realize who it is yet. And then verse 14, the Lord turns to him and says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not, I send you. Now this is the moment that all of a sudden Gideon Gideon realizes, I'm not just talking to a stranger, I'm talking to the Lord. Because if you study the text, he switches from talking about God in the third person, and after this he starts talking directly to God. But what's interesting to me about this passage in verse 14 is that the Lord once again says something that we wouldn't expect him to say. First he calls him a mighty man of valor, even though he's hiding in a wine press threshing wheat. And here he says, oh, go in your strength. The strength that you have, I'm going to use that strength, and that's how you're going to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of Midian. How, what strength? I mean, what? we haven't seen any evidence of strength. All we've seen is fear and weakness and, and doubting, but maybe that is the exact point. Maybe God is saying, it's your weakness that's going to become your strength. It's in your weakness that my strength is perfected. That's what Paul teaches us in the New Testament. But this also means that God can see strength in us that we can't see yet. God sees strength in Gideon that no one else sees. So, so Gideon knows he's talking to the Lord. He says, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. He's making excuses. He says, I have these concerns. My concerns are I'm a nobody, and I come from a nobody house and a nobody tribe. God says to him, I will be with you, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. Now, anyone who was going through the land of Israel in those days looking for a leader, looking for a deliverer, looking for a savior, would have seen Gideon threshing wheat in that wine press and would have walked right by, would have kept on looking. But God is the great recognizer. He recognized in Gideon what no one else could have or would have. Now listen, this is really good news for you and me because it means a few things. First off, and I've said it a couple times already, but God sees in you what you can't see in yourself. God recognizes in you what you can't even recognize in yourself. You might feel like you're Gideon. You're, you're hiding. You're surrounded by your fears. You're surrounded by your enemies. You're tormented by the circumstances of life, and there's no victory, and there's, there's no hope, and there's no way out, and God is the great recognizer. And he recognizes in you which you can't recognize in yourself. You can't even see and you can't see yourself the way God sees you this morning. You can't understand how he looks at you and loves you and delights over you. And he has not lost track of a single promise that he has spoken to you. He has not forgotten a single gift that he placed in you when he created you, when he breathed his life into you. He recognizes all of that. He recognizes who you are, but he also recognizes who you can be in his strength. But also, what I love about this beginning part of this story is that it reminds us that God somehow sees the best in us in our worst moments. In our worst moments. Gideon is not having a real shining moment in the beginning of this chapter. But God sees a deliverer when everybody else sees somebody who is scared and hiding. And then my last thought on this opening idea is this, that if we know that God sees us that way, if we believe that God is the great recognizer and in you and me, he recognizes things we can't recognize about ourselves, you know what it does? It actually frees you up and motivates you to do the same for others. Now you can recognize in other people things that they can't recognize in themselves. And you can speak life. I've never met somebody who says, 
Too many people are encouraging me. I need less, I need less people. If I just had less people speaking life into me, I would just be perfect. Nobody says that. Why? Because we all need encouragement. And listen, if you don't believe deep in your heart that God sees you where you're at and recognizes you for who you are, you'll never have the, the freedom and the motivation to do the same for others because you'll, too be, you'll be too busy spending all of your energy trying to get other people to recognize you. Do you recognize my gifts? Do you recognize who I am? Do you recognize what I've done? But the only thing that frees us from looking to other people to recognize us and notice us and approve of us and applaud us is once we have settled deep in our hearts the truth, God sees you and recognizes you. And if the God of heaven and earth this morning sees you and recognizes you, who else's recognition do you really need? And it frees you up to not be someone who needs everyone to look at you, but now you can look at others the same way that the Lord looks at Gideon in this story. So God is the great recognizer. But secondly, we see in the stories, we keep moving forward, that God is the great reassurer. He is the great reassurer. I don't even know if that's a word or not. I know reassurance is a word, but reassurer. Now, we get to this point in the story, and this is where the story gets a little bit uh, clunky, because Gideon starts to ask for signs, right? Remember this, some of you that know the story? Gideon asked for a sign, and this is the first of several in this story. He says to him in verse 17 of chapter 6, if I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. He's basically saying, God, do something cool. (laughs) Do something supernatural so I know it's you. Now let's talk for a second. Let's just pause and talk about signs in Scripture. Uh, 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 There's a book called Is the Old Testament Trustworthy by a guy named Walter Kaiser. Actually, sorry, it's an article in a Bible called the Apologetic Apologetic Study Bible. Uh, This is what he says about signs, and this was very helpful for me. And every single thing he says, by the way, he has scripture references for. He says, God uses signs in scripture for many purposes. Here's some of the reasons why God uses signs in scripture. To declare his faithfulness. To confirm his will. To encourage a person who's weak in faith. That's what's happening here. To test his people's readiness to follow him rather than the false prophets. To confirm a person as his spokesperson. That's what he did with Moses. To announce his own coming or presence. And to confirm that God is, in fact, the speaker of a message or the source of behind it. That was the whole Ten Commandments. and I'm sorry, not the Ten Commandments, the Ten Plagues, the giving of the signs. But then the author says this, and we need to hear this. That signs sometimes occurred, however, does not mean that God expected his people to ask for them. To seek a sign was no guarantee that God would provide one, and receiving one was no assurance that it came from God. Moreover, there is no guarantee that the individual receiving a sign would believe it or act in accordance with it. And then he says this, and this is very true. Matthew 12, Luke 11, 1 Corinthians 1. God was not always pleased with those who asked for signs. So we're going to see in this story that God is the great reassurer. And that even though Gideon asks for multiple signs, God keeps faithfully reassuring Gideon and reassuring Gideon. But we got to be careful about how we read this story. This is not a template for how we should live out our lives necessarily. Okay, and so I'll talk a little bit more about that. So Gideon says, wait here, I need you to do a sign. And so Gideon goes into his house. He gets a young goat. He gets some unleavened cakes. He makes a nice rich broth. I'm getting hungry talking about it. And he brings it all back out. And the angel of the Lord says, okay, take the meat, take the broth, put it on a rock and pour the, take the meat and the bread, put it on the rock and pour some broth over it. And so 
Gideon did that. Now, for some of you, that would ruin the bread, wouldn't it? Some of you hate having your bread dipped in. My wife is like that. She can't have her bread dipped in anything. Soggy bread is her nightmare. I love dipping bread in everything. I'm fine with it. But so he pours his broth over the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord in verse 21, it says, he reached out the tip of the staff that he was holding and he touched the meat and the unleavened cake and and out of the rock, a fire springs up and it consumes the meat and the unleavened cakes. And then the angel of the Lord vanishes from his sight. And Gideon's like, oh, wow. And Gideon actually says, I've seen God face to face. I'm going to die. I am going to die. That's always the reaction people have in the Old Testament when they realize they've seen the Lord face to face. But the Lord says to him, peace to you. Do not fear. You will not die. And so Gideon builds an altar there and calls it the Lord is peace. So the Lord does this incredible sign for him. He makes fire come up from a rock to consume the offering, and then he disappears. You'd think Gideon would be okay to go, but we're going to see that he wasn't quite ready yet. Well, that night, the Lord comes to Gideon and says, I want you to destroy the altars made to Baal in your village. What God is saying to him is, before you can throw off the enemies around you, you got to throw off the enemies within you. You're going to go fight the Midianites? you got to first tear down the altars that the Israelites are worshiping. Now, Gideon is afraid to do this. Here's the thing. Seven years of economic dominance by the Midianites. Seven years of starvation warfare. So here's what's happened to the Israelites. They don't see God answering their prayers, and that's why they're turning to other gods. They're saying, well, if Yahweh's not going to answer our prayers, let's pray to Baal. And so they're sort of like hedging their bets and hoping that Baal will hear them when they pray. And so Gideon knows that these altars mean a lot to his to his tribe. So he's afraid to tear them down. And so Gideon gets 10 of his male servants, but he won't do it during the daytime. He does it at night. So everybody's sleeping. They throw on their black ninja outfits and they go out there and they cut down what's called the Asherah pole, which was another form of idolatry. They use the very wood from the pole and they build an altar. They tear down Baal's altar and they sacrifice a bull on top of it. And that's significant because the animal that represented Baal was a bull. So there's a lot happening in this. First, they're doing it on top of the wood that they used to worship, and they're doing it to the animal that represents the God that they're worshiping. So Gideon's really doing, making a strong statement here. And so he does all this. People wake up in the morning, and they walk out, and they're like, what? where did the altar go, and what's in his place? And they get very angry. Like, who did this? And they find out it's Gideon. And so the people in the town say, we need to kill him for what he's done. So they come after Gideon, and Gideon's father actually steps up. It's the only time Gideon's father says anything. And Gideon's father basically says, hey, easy. If Baal is who you say he is, don't you think he can fight his own fight? Like, let Baal take care of my son. Why would you do Baal's work for him? If Baal is this mighty God, he'll deal with him. And everybody said, okay, that makes sense. And then they actually gave Gideon a nickname because of this whole story. They gave him the nickname Jerobal. And Jerobal simply means let Baal contend with him. So they gave Gideon this nickname of like, let Baal take care of him. He's not our problem. And so we get to the point in the story now where the Midianites, it's harvest time, and the Midianites are coming back to do what they've done for the last seven years. It's year eight, and they're coming back to destroy their crops and to take their livestock. And Gideon gathers 32,000 men from four different tribes. He says, come together, we're going to fight. But before this all happens, before he fights, Gideon says, I need one more sign. Now, this is the story of Gideon that we're probably most familiar with. It's the story of the fleece. So in this, Gideon says to God, I need another sign that you're actually going to deliver the Midianites into my hand and that you're going to use me to defeat the armies of Midian. 
He says, this is what I need, this is what I want to do. He says, I'm going to take this fleece of wool and I'm going to put it out on the threshing floor overnight. And in the morning, you know, there's normally dew on the ground. He says, in the morning, if you're the one who's actually going to use me to defeat them, I want to come out and find that the dew on the ground is only on the fleece. So everything else is dry and the dew is wet. So Gideon goes to sleep that night. He wakes up the next morning. He walks out. And sure enough, God has delivered another sign. The, the, the fleece is soaking wet and the ground is dry. But Gideon begins to go, yeah, but that's what wool does. I mean, right? I mean, wool kind of soaks up liquid. So may, I should have asked the other way around. And then he says to God, don't be angry with me, but just one more thing. I'm going to do it all over again, but let's reverse it. This time, everything has due except for the fleece. He's testing God. And the next morning, Gideon wakes up and he walks out there and dew is everywhere except on the fleece. Now, it's tough to know what to do with his story. It is. It's tough to know what to do with it because on one hand, he's doing something that we're instructed not to do. He's testing God. But on the other hand, God does what Gideon asked for. He's the great reassurer. So remember in week one, we talked about how these stories are descriptive, not prescriptive. They describe something that happened, but they don't necessarily prescribe for us how we should live our lives. Some commentators say what Gideon does here is good, and some say what Gideon does here is not good. So we're not really sure whether or not this is an act of faith or an act of fear. But either way, what we need to notice is this is primarily an example of how patient God is. So don't make Gideon the example here. There's, this is not an example of how you and I should best approach God. And I've actually heard Christians use this language. Well, I don't know if I should take this job, so I'm going to put a fleece out. And the, you know, they're, they're, they're referencing Gideon's story. And my fleece is, is that as I'm, as I'm driving down the street, if four red cars drive by me going the other way in the next mile, then it's God's will for my life. It's very mystical. It's very actually impersonal. God is personal. That's actually a very impersonal way of relating to God, saying you just provide me with some clues. And so I just think be careful about this. Just because Gideon did it is not prescriptive for your life. Don't test God. Don't say, God, prove it to me through all these different ways. Now, may God, God may sometimes give you signs like that and be grateful when he does. But don't use Gideon as an example because the example in this story is not be like Gideon. The example is look at how faithful God is. Look at how patient he is. Gideon is testing him. He did it once for Gideon. Gideon says it's not enough. He does it again for Gideon because he's the great, what, reassurer. God reassures us. And after all this happens, Gideon gets his army together, and he says, all right, we're going to go fight the Midianites. And God says to him, you have too many people. Now, remember, the Midianites were without number. They were like locusts. We don't know how many there were, but there were thousands upon thousands, maybe millions of these Midianites. And Gideon gets 32,000 from only four of the 12 tribes. And God says, you have too many. And he says, line them all up and tell the ones that are afraid to go home. 32,000 men. Hey, if you're afraid, go back to your home. You know, this is actually a precedent for this, interestingly enough. I didn't realize this, but in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, this is actually law. They, tell, they say, when you go to fight, the people that are afraid should not fight. And so Gideon is actually following God's law. It's not the first time God has said this. So how many men leave? 22,000 men leave. And now there's 10,000 men. 
Now, three weeks ago, we talked about Barak. Remember Barak, the general, and his 10,000 men? And we said how God used 10,000 men with Barak to defeat the Canaanites. And once it got down to 10,000 men again, I have to think Gideon thought, oh, I see what God's doing. Barak and his 10,000 men, Gideon and his 10,000 men. Oh, okay, I got God figured out. So when God says, you still have too many men, God is not just challenging Gideon's battle strategy. He's challenging his theology, saying, I'm not doing it the same. I'm doing it different this time. And so God tells Gideon, take the men down to the lake or down to the river and have them all get a drink of water and watch how they drink. And out of the 10,000 men, 9,700 of them get down on all fours and lap up water like a dog. And 300 of them kneel on one knee and use their hand to pull water up to their mouth to drink. We can't, we can't read into that too much. The Bible doesn't really say that that's meant to teach us something. But for whatever reason, God says, just take the 300 men. Now, Gideon's gone from 32,000 men to 300 men to fight an enemy that is without number. What we see here is God is taking from Gideon the things that he might trust in. He's removing from Gideon the things that he might hope in, the things that he might point to later as a source of victory. At this point, God says to Gideon, get your 300 men, you're going to fight the Midianites. Now, I love this because Gideon doesn't ask for the next sign. God just knows he needs it. (laughs) God just like says to him, by the way, Gideon, if you're still afraid... I got something for you to do. Take one of your buddies, sneak into the camp of the Midianites, which I'm thinking, how afraid was Gideon? He, he was sneaking into their camp. I mean, that's a pretty brave move, right? But he sneaks into the camp, and he gets up to this tent, and I picture him kind of like listing against the tent, and he hears two Midianite warriors talking. And in verse 13 of chapter 7, the one says to the other, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. So he has this dream about this barley bread. Barley bread, by the way, was the bread of the poor. It was a, it was a bread of poverty. So it's probably the bread that the Israelites were eating in that season. Barley bread comes in, and then his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. What do you think was going through Gideon's mind as he's listening to this? I mean, this is remarkable. Think about the sovereignty of God. He's giving dreams to pagans. And then he's positioning Gideon at the right place at the right time to hear the right conversation. And then he gives another pagan the interpretation for the dream. It's like, God is totally in control. But why does he do all of this? Because he's trying to reassure Gideon. He's reassuring him because God is the great reassurer. And in verse 15, after Gideon hears this dream, it says for the first time in all of his story that he worshiped. Now he's a worshiper. Now he's like, I've been reassured. First you burned up my meal on a rock. Then you disappeared. Then you did the fleece. Then you did the fleece again. And now I've literally heard with my own ears that you're in dreams telling the enemy what we're going to do, and they believe it. And so Gideon worships, and he runs back to the camp of Israel, and he says, come on, guys, get ready. God has given Midian into our hands. God reassures us. Now, before we get to the last point, how does God reassure us today? There's three ways, I think, that God reassures us most frequently. Number one, he reassures us through his word. Why do you need to read scripture every day? Why do you need to be in the Bible? Because you need reassurance. 
our hearts need reassurance of a few things. We need to be reassured that God is who he says he is. Otherwise, we forget. But we also need to be reassured that God did what he said he did and that we are who he says we are because of who he is and what he did. That was a mouthful, but it's all true. We are who he says we are because of who he is and what he did. And the greatest, most, the most certain place to find that reassurance is in Scripture, more than anything. The second place, the second way that God reassures his people today is through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was sent to be a comforter. The Holy Spirit was to lead us into truth, to convict us about our, our wrong thinking about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so the Holy Spirit's, one of the Holy Spirit's primary jobs is to seal you for the day of redemption and to reassure you. And the Spirit is, if you listen through his word, the Spirit is whispering to your heart all day long, you're in Christ. You belong to Jesus. You're seated on high. He's assuring you. He's reassuring you of your salvation. He's reassuring you of your standing. He's reassuring you of his faithfulness to you. So we need to say, Holy Spirit, let my heart be open to hear your reassuring words. And then the last way, so his word, his spirit, and then the last way that the spirit that God reassures us today is through each other, through his people. We build each other up. We edify each other. We exhort each other. So God is a faithful God, and he is the great reassurer. So God is the great recognizer. God is the great reassurer. And then lastly, what we see in this story is that God is the great rescuer. Gideon instructs his men for battle. And this is what Gideon says. Break up into three groups of 100 and grab a, grab a torch, grab a pitcher, uh, not, a, not a, you know, a, a, a jar to go over the torch and grab a trumpet and let's go to battle. And I'm sure the guys are like, okay, got my, got my jar, got my torch, got my trumpet. Let's go fight Wait a minute. Sword, shield, bow and arrow. Um, Gideon, what are we going to do? Are we having a, are we having a march? Is the Memorial Day parade? Or are, we, or, or are we actually going to battle? Gideon says, don't, there's no mention of bringing your swords. Don't even worry about your swords. Don't even worry about your shields. This is what we're going to do. Take this group of 100 men over here, this group of 100 men, this group of 100 men. Now, Midian was in a valley. So, so the Israelites actually had an advantage. Their position was advantageous because they were attacking from above, so to speak. Midian's down in a valley, but there's thousands and thousands, maybe millions of them. There's 100 men here, 100 men here, 100 men here. So from the Midianites' view, it looked like they were surrounded. And so Gideon says to them, and, and let's, read, let's read it together in verse 19 of chapter 7. So Gideon and the 100 men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. Now that's important. The middle watch is the middle of the night and they're switching locations now. So there's every, more people than normal are moving around the camp, all right? So there's the people who are coming off their watch, off their shift. You know, they got the midnight shift and you're leaving and the next shift is showing up. So all of this is happening. This is when Gideon, so Gideon's not a dummy. He does actually use some strength here in his mind and in his thinking. It says that they blew the trumpets, they smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies of a hundred different men blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands they were blowing on their trumpets. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. 
They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So here's what happens. At the darkest hour of night, Gideon and his hundred men approach the camp. They blow their horns. They smash their jars. They hold the torches high that they have been concealed in the jars. Then they shout at the top of their voices, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. But only Midianite's swords were used. A sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. But it was the swords of the Midianites that destroyed them. They turned on each other. They panicked. In the dark of night, with more people than normal, moving around the camp, they thought, oh my goodness, we're under attack and we're surrounded. And, you know, you ever wake up in the middle of night? Things are a lot creepier in the middle of the night than they are in the day, right? You're like, in the middle of the night, you hear a little noise and you're like grabbing a bat under your bed. During the day, you hear the noise and you're like, that's odd, I wonder what that is, right? Because if, you, if you're woken up from a sleep, it's very startling. You're not thinking clear. You're, you're coming out of it and sometimes things look scary. So these people are all either very tired and about to go to sleep or they're, very, they're just waking up for sleep and they're walking around and all they can hear is these horns blowing, these men yelling, this fire surrounding them and they pull out their swords because the Israelites didn't bring any and they just start hacking each other. They start attacking each other and they start killing each other, and eventually they run off. And as they run off, they run right into the, the tribe of Ephraim, who takes care of the rest of the business. But you know what the Israelites did after all that yelling and blowing of the horns and holding of the torches? It says that they just stood there. They stood and they watched God's deliverance. God is the great rescuer. Let's go back to how we started. In this story, what are the Israelites concerned about? What is Gideon concerned about? And what is God concerned about? You know what I notice is this. Gideon is concerned about so many things, but God is only concerned about one thing. Gideon is concerned about so many things. God is concerned about one thing. Gideon is concerned about his background and his status, but God is the great recognizer. Gideon is concerned about the safety and his abilities and his resources, but God is the great reassurer. Gideon is concerned about his people being tormented by a powerful, undefeatable enemy, but God is the great rescuer. Gideon is concerned about so many things, but God is only concerned about one thing. You know what God is concerned about? It said it, we we read it, but we went by it kind of quickly. In chapter seven, verse four, it says this, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Do you know what God's only concern was in this whole story? that the Israelites would think they saved themselves. That was God's one concern, that Israel would think we did this and we'll boast in ourselves. That's why he chose Gideon, a nobody, a completely normal person. That's why he only allowed 300 men to go out there. That's why he didn't let them bring their swords. He didn't even let them fight. They just stood there and watched him fight. Because God's one concern is that his people would never be confused about where their salvation comes from. I think of this scene in The Lion King where the little Simba is still a little cub and he's running around with Nala and they get into a place they shouldn't be and the hyenas, those three hyenas, come and they're kind of bullying them and scaring them and they back them into a corner and Simba's like ready to roar. And they're like, come on, let us hear your roar. Let us hear your roar. And Simba does his little baby roar, and the hyenas are laughing and laughing. He's like, come on, you can do better than that. And Simba does his little baby roar, and they're just laughing. They're getting ready to attack. And Simba goes to do the roar for the last time, and it's like, roar. 
it's this huge roar that comes out of him. And the hyenas go from laughing to, huh? Like, what's going on? And what's going on is Mufasa, his father is standing behind him, roaring through him. You know, the people of Israel are standing there thinking, we're fighting this battle, but it's not their battle to fight. It was God's battle. He was standing behind them. He was fighting in their place. This is so true for us. Karl Barth said this, no one can be saved in virtue of what he can do, but everyone can be saved in virtue of what God can do. This is still God's great concern for his church today, that we would never forget where our salvation came from, that we would never be confused about where our hope is and who our true deliverer is. That same awe that filled the hearts of those 300 men that night, can you imagine as they watched, they just stood there and watched and they're like, Oh my goodness, they're fighting each other. They're, they're killing each other. Now they're running. They're scared. And they're just watching. That same awe and worship that filled their hearts should fill our heart every time, every time we think about what God has done for us. Every time we say, well, the cross, what do we do? We stand and we look. We watch the act of deliverance, the ultimate act of deliverance. And it changes us. This past week, um, Aaron and I were watching a show on DVR that we, we like to watch called Undercover Boss. Anybody ever see Under, Undercover Boss? I think it's on ABC. And uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. The boss of a company uh, puts on a disguise and goes and works with you know, the people at the lower levels of the company because he or she wants to learn and it's always some tension. And, but at the end of every show, there's always this, he reveals himself or she reveals herself and gives usually some gifts and some money and, and really blesses those people. Well, the, the, the season finale of Undercover Boss was actually a little different. They, they, they chose a celebrity chef named Marcus Samuelson. Marcus Samuelson is a, actually a refugee from another country who survived some tremendous things in his past. And now he's a celebrity chef, and his main restaurant is actually in Harlem. It's called Red Rooster. And uh, he dressed up in, in, uh, in, in a disguise, pretended he couldn't cook, and went and worked with other chefs because he's looking for great young chefs, great young talent. And I love the end of the show because the person always reveals themselves and they sit across from them and then they begin to say, listen, I want to do this for you. There was one young female chef and he began to say to her, here's what I want to do for you. I want to send you to Europe to study more. And I want to give you $20,000 so that when you're over there, you can, you can have all your expenses paid. And then when that's all done, you're going to have a job at my restaurant waiting for you, either in London or in New York City. You get to choose. And she's, she's, she's crying, and she's emotional. She's saying things like, no way, you're joking. You're jo-. She kept saying, you're, not, you're joking, you're, me- you're, make- you're, me- you're messing with me, right? This can't be real. And then I loved his phrase that he said to her. He said, this is happening. This is happening. This is really happening. And I think when those 300 men <laughs> were watching that battle, I'm sure they were going, no way, no way. This, is, this, is a, this cannot be real. But God's spirit was saying, oh, this is happening because I'm a great, I'm a great rescuer. You and I are concerned about so many things, aren't we? We have so many concerns and they're real. I'm not, I'm not making light of your concerns. They're real. So many concerns, but God has one concern. Don't ever think for a moment that anyone or anything else has, can, or will ever rescue you from your deepest concerns. Rather, we're called to stand and watch his deliverance and receive what he's done on our behalf. 
And it frees our hearts up to love him, to adore him, to worship him, to live for him. Let's pray together this morning.